Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes. And chose that in which I do not delight. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you. Who cast you out of my name's sake. Said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city. A voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord. Who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? And who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory for thus says the Lord behold I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream then you shall feed on her sides shall be you, shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire for by fire and by his sword shall the Lord the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, 
It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame, nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord, forever or For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I don't have time to repeat all of the book of Isaiah, but this chapter, the theme of this chapter is worship. And it is about true worship and false worship. Why is there false worship? Because we live in a fallen world. Remember, sin has invaded our universe with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. We live in a fallen world. And from our first parents and their children, they produced Cain and Abel. And you'll remember that their offspring became the first, if you will, worshipers besides Adam and Eve. And the world has always been categorized into those who worship God on God's terms and those who worship God on their own terms. We've discovered that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so the chapter begins by confronting false worship in verses 10 through 15 and then concludes with celebrating true and endless worship in verses 22 through 23. As a matter of fact, we see In this chapter, a look at the last temple in verses 1 through 6, a look at the future restored city in verses 7 through 14, a look at the last judgment in verses 15 through 18, a look at the future heavens and the future earth in verses 22 and 23, and then a look at the future fate of the unrepentant in verse 24. And so now the book comes to a crashing halt. But like... The theme of the book of Isaiah is Israel's Messiah. The sub-theme of this particular book is judgment and hope. And like a teeter-totter of sin and rebellion, with sin and rebellion comes judgment. But with humility and repentance and turning to the Lord and and hearing and understanding and receiving God's promises come hope. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were on the teeter-totter? There's one thing you can't do on a teeter-totter by yourself. You need somebody else on the other side if you're going to have equilibrium. 
God cares about worship. As a matter of fact, Ray Orland, he writes, Why does God care so passionately about the authenticity of our worship? He writes, because every church service is where the new creation is struggling to break in, where human hearts are deciding whether their Christianity will resist the future God has promised or whether their Christianity will become the future that God has promised. And true worship is so counterintuitive that as it rises and sweeps through the church, inevitably inevitably it will be criticized. True worship is the true understanding of God. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth and come to God on God's terms. And God's terms has always been through Israel's Messiah, which is the theme of the book. And so again, in the first verse, where it says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you ever build me a temple as good as that? Could you build a dwelling place for me? Now, here's what we understand. Remember what Isaiah has prophesied. The temple is going to be destroyed. And by the way, it will be destroyed by the Babylonians. They will come in. They will destroy the temple. You know the story in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah, they will return. They will rebuild the temple. There will be several more hundred years. Jesus will come. He will live, minister, preach, suffer, die, rise from the dead. The the Roman will come in and they will destroy the temple. But for the Jews who are deeply, deeply religious and deeply, deeply tied to their temple, they're wondering, how can I possibly honor God, obey God, and worship God without a temple? And God's point is, don't you understand? God is a spirit. God doesn't dwell in buildings. Remember, Jesus said to the woman, Those that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And because God is omniscient and omnipresent, God is everywhere at once. The universe, vast and expansive, is used as a metaphor. Now think about it. We are just now beginning to understand through the Hubble telescope and and modern astronomy just how vast this universe is. And Isaiah's declaration is, yes, this universe is just big enough Barely to be a seat. And the earth, a small, scrunchy footstool. It's a metaphor. The reality is the universe is not large enough to contain God. And the earth is not large enough to contain God. The universe itself is simply too confined, too limited to contain the presence of God. And so what is large enough to contain the presence of God? Oddly enough, the Bible says that God has placed eternity in your hearts. The great mystery that I've never been able to resolve is how can an infinite being dwell in a finite creature? How is it that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come and live inside of you? I have zero idea. But you know what? I know that it's the promise of God. And so when it says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Could you ever build me a temple as good as that? The answer is no. Could you build a dwelling place for me? No. But God can build a dwelling place for himself. 
you, your heart. In verse 2, it says, for all those things my hand has made. The idea being, it is the Lord God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. An infinite being with infinite capacities. Why should he care about you? Remember the psalmist said, what is man that you would consider him? So where does God dwell? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? If a person builds a building or a church, it's no guarantee that God is going to show up. Earlier on my radio program this week, I had an odd call. A person calls and says, Hey, why don't you keep your church open 24 hours a day? And I tried to help him understand. Do you ever lock your door at night? He knew where I was going with it. Well, yeah. Well, why do you do that? Do you ever leave your house and do you ever lock the door? Where are you going with this? You lock your door because there are people who will come in and steal your stuff. Tragically, we live in a world where, guess what? We have to lock the doors of the church because there are there people who will come in and steal the stuff in the church. Yeah, I hate it, but that's the way that it is. Well, I want the church open all the time. Why? Because I feel closer to God in the church. By the way, does God live in an X Albertsons made with cement block? No, God doesn't live here. He lives inside of you. You, according to the Bible, are the stones that God is using, the temple of the true and the living God. We are only a church when we come together. We are only a church when we worship the Lord as a church. The Lord God will dwell with the person who is humble and contrite and submitted and who trembles at His Word. Look where God shows up. Does God show up at a big church? Does God show up at one with... with uh, with crystal cathedrals or with great, huge, magnificent grandeur? No. Here's the deal. Think of the implications of that one simple statement. That the Lord dwells with the humble, the contrite, the submitted. That the Lord dwells with the person who loves the Lord, who acknowledges His greatness. The person who considers his beauty and his majesty. This is the person who is contrite before the Lord, who bows to the Lord, who is in humility submits himself or herself to the Lord, who acknowledges his or her unworthiness and sin, who confesses and repents of sin. Think about this. And who trembles at his word, who respects the Bible, believes the Bible, the idea being that the thought of disobeying the Bible, disobeying God's Word, this is the person who God accepts. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I, I 
thought God accepted everybody. No. Not really. Who does God accept? The humble. The contrite. Those who turn from their sin. Those who in humility acknowledge that there is something desperately wrong with them and that they need a Savior. And look what it says in verse 3. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Isaiah begins to describe the religious rituals of the Jewish people. Did God prescribe sacrifice? The answer is yes. Was it God who talked about bringing a bull and bringing a lamb? Was it God who talked about bringing a grain offering? Was it God who talked about burning incense? It was the Lord in these prescribed manners. But here's the point that the prophet is making on behalf of God. Religious ritual, apart from having a right relationship and attitude towards God, has the same net effect as if you are a pagan. He who kills a bull as if he slays a man. Just because you go to the temple and you offer the bull, people will kill the bull the same, the same way that, that people will commit murder. Or they'll offer a lamb the way that they would just break a dog's neck. Here's the idea. God not only does not accept every form of worship, but God doesn't even accept acceptable worship with a wrong heart. Hey, wait a minute. I go to church. I read my Bible. I watch Christian TV. Then what is it about you that is so far and, and so distant from from God. Here's the idea. The Bible seems to consistently say that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who come, like I said, to the Lord on the Lord's terms and those who refuse to come to the Lord on the Lord's terms. God does not accept every form of worship. We live in a culture and a society that attempts to present itself in terms of graciousness and toleration. We tolerate all religions. We tolerate all forms of religious expression. Because a government or a culture tolerates all forms of worship, some mistakenly believe that God tolerates all forms of worship. Nothing could be further from the truth. What is the acceptable form of worship? According to the New Testament, those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. For those who come to him, they must come to him on his terms. And what are his terms? It's through his Messiah. <laughs> Our government and culture seems intolerant of only one type of worship. Historical, biblical Christianity. The God who reveals himself in the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ. So listen carefully. Who does God reject as a worshiper? Those who simply go through the religious motions, but their heart is far from him. 
those who sing with their mouth, but their heart is detached. Those who go through the motions in their mind and their heart, but deep inside of them there is this persistent and consistent rebellion against God. So who is rejected by God? The person who lives under the delusion that they can live like they want apart from God. The person who simply ignores or disobeys God's word, God's command. Their worship is unacceptable, and it doesn't matter if they show up for church or the temple. It doesn't matter if they give the sacrifice. And what the Lord is saying is shocking and disturbing. Wait a minute, are you saying if I go to church and I even give to the church and I put on the masquerade and I go through the religious motions, that that isn't good enough? Exactly, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, then why go to church? Exactly. Exactly. Because if you go to church and you give to the church because you think that going to the church and giving to the church somehow automatically makes you have a right relationship with God, you're, you're profoundly mistaken. There's only one thing that makes you have a right relationship with God. Humility. Repentance. A willingness to turn from your sin and with complete and full abandon acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so what Isaiah is saying and what the Lord is saying through Isaiah is shocking and disturbing for people who love religion, for people who love spirituality, but who aren't particularly fond of the Bible. Or the revelation of God in in Christ. The person who approaches God with an impure, unkind, or disobedient heart is the same as the unrepentant murderer. The person who offers a dog or a pig to God who fabricates and worships an idol of their own making. And so in verse 4 it says, So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Here's what he's saying. Have you ever, did your mother or your father ever say this to you? I'm going to make sure that your worst nightmare comes true. Thank God, you're, that means you probably had a great parent. When, when, the, when it says, so I will choose their delusions, the idea is, I'm going to allow them to continue in their own delusions. That somehow, living under the illusion that you're a good person, living under the illusion that if you go to church and you go through the motions and you just, if you look like a Christian and you talk like a Christian and you act like a Christian and you carry a Bible like a Christian, that you'll be fine and bring their fears on them. And listen, he gives the reason. Because when I called, no one answered. And here is the idea. Did the people go to the temple? Yes, they did. Did they offer the sacrifice? Yes, they did. Did they burn the incense? Yes, they did. They are going through the religious motions. And so God is trying to talk to them. Excuse me. Can I have your attention, please? I'd like to have a conversation with you, but they were so busy being religious that they wouldn't even take time to hear what God was saying. Have you ever done that? You're so busy being religious that you don't even take time 
to listen to what God is saying to you. And what is God saying to you? Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. And they were perfectly content on being religious, but they didn't want to hear from God. And they didn't want to see God. And then they didn't want to do God's will. Look at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast out for my namesake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, that you may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. In verse 6, the sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Now, you need to understand something about these particular passages. Right away, some of you might be uncomfortable. Well, you know, the judgment of God seems a little harsh. But the Lord gives three reasons for rejecting hypocritical worship. Number one, they failed to respond to God's call for repentance. God is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In order to worship Him in spirit and in truth, we can't deny the problem of sin. And we can't be willing to retain a lifestyle of sin. And number two, so the people continue to engage in false worship, refusing to cease and desist from their evil before God's eyes, even at the very moment that God was calling them to repentance. It was as if the Lord was saying, I need you to stop now. This rebellion stuff, I need it to be over with. I mean, it's one thing for a child to, in stubborn immaturity, resist the discipline of a parent. But it's time to grow up. And number three, those who insisted on false worship weren't even content in their false worship. But they persecuted those who insisted on true worship, those who were contrite, those who did tremble at God's word. In verse 5 where it says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. Here's the idea. The people who wickedly resisted God began to make fun of and then persecute true believers. Are are you seriously going to go to church tonight? Yeah. Are, Are you seriously going to continue to read your Bible? Yeah. Okay, it's one thing to go to church and it's one thing to read your Bible, but you don't really like believe this nonsense, do you? Yeah. I mean, it's a good idea to go to church because you want your children to have a strong moral mooring. But that doesn't mean you have to go overboard. Now think about it. We live in a world and we live in a culture and we live in a society that the moment you say there is a God and he loves you, and the Bible is true, you're overboard. You're off the deep end. The truth of God's Word remains in every generation, and that's the point. The Word 
the words of Isaiah were true when he was writing these words to the children of Jerusalem and Judea before it fell to the Babylonians, when Jerusalem fell to the Romans, when Jerusalem will be persecuted and overrun by a future Antichrist and that wicked Antichrist's armies in every generation, there are going to be a group of people who are going to be called to determine whether or not on that teeter-totter between judgment and hope where they're going to stand. And as a result of the false worship and their terrible sin, the judgment became unavoidable and unescapable. The persecutors and false worshipers will be completely ashamed. They're going to suffer God's vengeance suddenly and without warning. There's this uproar. Here's what's happening in verse 6 where it says, Oh, listen, the sound of noise from the city, a, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. It's Isaiah's poetic way of saying, don't you hear what's going on outside? When I was a very young man, there was riots and wads. Have you ever been in a, in a, in a circumstance where the whole world was falling apart outside the door? You hear screaming and rioting. There's madness. Oh, by the way, all you have to do is just be here in Denver next month for the Democratic National Convention. You're going to hear riots and screaming. And you're going to go, oh, listen, listen outside. And that's exactly what's happening here. The fury, the sound and the fury of the battle will be heard as God destroys his, his enemies, the false worshipers. Again, in verse, in verse 6. And so, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Paul, and he's basically saying to the Thessalonians, he's saying, look, there's going to come a time when God will show up in flaming fire and in vengeance. You know why he shows up in flaming fire and in vengeance? Because the message of mercy and the message of hope and the message of grace and the message of compassion spoken over and over and over and over again is rejected. To the Jew, remember what I said, the, the, the temple was a huge deal. And they couldn't imagine, they couldn't imagine how can we have a right relationship with God without the temple? The point? You can have a right relationship with God by grace through faith because the just shall live by faith. For the people who are in Babylon, when the prophecy is fulfilled, the only thing that they have to hold on is the hope of the promise that the Messiah will come. Is it possible that you could live in a world? Is it possible that one day you could wake up and the doors of the church are closed and this building is empty and there are no seats and the lights are out because guess what? You're living in a world where people don't go to church. 
where the church is irrelevant, where the church doesn't matter. And because the church is irrelevant and because the church doesn't matter and because you can't even go to a church and gather with believers in a public setting. Maybe not. I hope not. But that's a reality in many parts of the world. God isn't interested in cement block or bricks or mortar or timber. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. If God has such a glorious seat and an impressive footstool, where is a worthy place for his glory to dwell? And Now think for a moment what the Lord winds up saying. The place he desires to place his spirit. This is the place where God desires to dwell. In your heart. In your humble heart. In your repentant heart. In your gracious heart. In your cleansed heart. In your selfless heart. In your pardoned heart. In the heart that loves God's Word. Think about worship for just a moment. It's more than singing songs. Worship includes Bible study. Oddly enough, worship can be preaching a sermon. Worship can be listening to a sermon. Worship is longing to hear God's Word. It's a desperate desire on the believer's heart to believe God's Word and then obey God's Word. Do you know what the problem is? Every single Bible teacher is a human being. And because we are a human being, we say and we do things that make you turn off. Okay, I'm done listening to Gino. I'm done. What did you say? Oh, it isn't really what you say or don't say. It's Wednesday. It's the final episode of Survivor or whatever it is that you do. But here's my point. Hearing God's word is an act of worship. Believing God's word is an act of worship. Obeying God's word is an act of worship. And I'm going to say something that might surprise you. Disobeying God's word is an act of worship. But it's an act of false worship to a false God. It is an act of worship to Satan or to self. And look what it says. Isaiah rips open the curtain and reveals a future restored city. Look what it says in verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Look carefully at that expression in verse 7. Before she was in travail or labor, she gives birth. You know what I think this actually has something to do with? I think it has something to do with either one of two things. The nation Israel or the Messiah. Remember in the book of Revelation, it talks about the male child. 
This may be a reference to the Messiah. It might be a, a reference to Israel. I suspect, again, there are two births that are given in this passage. One is the Messiah. One is the Christ, the man-child. And, the, and then the birth of the nation after the tribulation. And, and so, again, we have this odd situation that's being spoken of. Is the Messiah born in a day? Of course, there was a day that Jesus was born. Did the nation Israel come into existence on a single day? The answer is yes. Is it possible that Israel will be born in a day when the nation itself sees the Messiah come and now all of a sudden observant Jews go, okay, we were waiting for the Messiah, but we didn't expect the carpenter from Galilee. I, there was a, a, a Jewish rabbi who said, I'm going to ask the Messiah. The very first question I'm going to ask the Messiah is, is this your first visit or is this your second visit? In verse 8 it says, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Verse 9, shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I cause delivery, shut up the womb, says your God? Here's the idea. God is going to allow the recreation of the nation. Is it talking about the destruction by Babylon and then the return of Israel and the formation of the country? I doubt it. Because the rest of the prophetic sequence doesn't seem to make sense. Warren Wearsby reminds us of the order of events that take place at the end of time. There is the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The rise of the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The breaking of, of an Antichrist, second seven-year covenant with the Jews. That's in Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to devote a lot of time to that when we get into the book of, of, of Daniel. After three and a half years, the pouring out of God's wrath on the world, Matthew chapter 24. Judging the Gentiles and purifying Israel, the return of Christ. What's going to happen? Well, whatever else is going to happen, guess what? The return of Israel from Babylon, the nation wasn't restored in a day. It took place over a long period of time. But in 1948, on May 14th, 1948, guess what? This nation that had been gone suddenly reappears. And then look at verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. Now think about this for a second. What Isaiah is doing is he's prophetically reminding us, rejoice with Jerusalem. And be glad with her, all you who love her. Why? Because she's restored. She exists. She is the crown of the Messiah's capital. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. They were mourning because of her destruction. In verse 11, that you may be 
may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides, shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees. Do you know what dandled means? Have you ever seen a mother with a child bounce the baby on her knee? That's the picture. Here is a picture of God as a strong father, but also as a nurturing mother. In verse 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When it says in verse 12, and the glory of the Gentiles shall be like a flowing stream as they come into to Jerusalem, then you shall feed. Do you know that one of the names of God in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. Some of you are familiar with Amy Grant's very famous song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Elyona Adonai. El Shaddai is a word in, in its Hebrew origins that speak of the paps or the breasts, if you will. And so here is a metaphor that God is an abundant provider and a comforter. The Lord is strong like a father, compassionate like a mother. In verse 14, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to the enemies. Isaiah rips away the veil and he sees a restored Jerusalem in eternity future where all of the nations recognize it as the capital of God and the capital of the Messiah. And so in the last days of human history, Isaiah predicts the restoration of Jerusalem and of the nation. Do you understand how amazing that is? How remarkable that is? Because the nation becomes a nation in 1948. And in 1967, a divided capital of Jerusalem gets united in the Six-Day War. What does all of that mean? Well, whatever else it means, it means that Isaiah prophesied a city and a nation would be born suddenly in a single day. You have to understand just how Absurd and impossible that might seem. When my wife gave birth to Anthony, her labor lasted longer than the creation of the nation Israel. It took it took her longer to have a baby than for this for the UN to declare the, that Israel was was the, the the capital or the modern state of a, of the Jewish people. The Lord Himself promised the Jews a place in the land. Now, here's the idea, and that that would be a cause for rejoicing, and there would be nourishment and comfort and satisfaction. Now, by the way, is Jerusalem and Israel a source of comfort, rejoicing, and satisfaction right now? No, for the rest of the world, it's a cup of trembling. We're on a precipice right now, with Mahmoud Abinajab saying, I want you to imagine a world without Israel, and I want you to imagine a world without the United States. Now, here's what's interesting. Isaiah says, I want you to imagine a world 
of sinlessness and of righteousness. Where Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. At the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 26 it said, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness. You will be called the faithful city. There will come a time when Jerusalem is called the faithful city. And, and again, Isaiah continues to peek into the future. He says in verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Remember what I said earlier? What happens if you don't respond to the gospel? If you don't respond to love, you don't respond to compassion, you don't respond to grace. I want you to think just carefully for a moment. Now the Lord pleads with fire and with a sword. That's the picture of the tribulation period. God comes and with fire and with a sword he is still trying to get people to repent and turn to him. A careful study of the book of Revelation, that becomes the reoccurring theme. Won't you turn? Won't you give up your rebellion? Won't you give up your disobedience? Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Verse 17. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. You may not understand what that passage says, but here's what the prophet Isaiah is doing. He's giving a picture of the children of Judea and the children of Jerusalem who are sneaking around. In other words, remember, observant Jews are supposed to keep kosher. Are they allowed to eat bacon burgers? The answer is no. How about mouse burgers? No. Most of you probably go, I could keep kosher. Rat and mouse doesn't seem to appeal to me. But here's the idea. They would go into the sacred groves. And they would eat impure things that were, were forbidden. And you might think, yuck. But you know what's interesting about the verse? We sneak around too, don't we? The Lord says, here's what I need you to do. And I want you to do this, and I want, I, I want you to do that. I want you to love me, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. But we sneak behind the Lord's back. Just like when you're kids and your parents say, you can't smoke, and then you, you steal the cigarettes, and you go behind the building, and you light the match, and, and you, you do that which is forbidden, that which is not allowed. But you know exactly what it's talking about. The Lord Jesus will return to the earth. And when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth, will he find anyone faithful? Will he find anyone pure? The Lord Jesus will return. And there will be two groups of people that will face his wrath and face his judgment. Those who embrace false worship of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And those who reject Jesus altogether. They will be punished with the fire and with the sword of his mouth. Only the righteous will enter into the Messiah's kingdom. And then look what it says in verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. 
It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, that means languages, and they shall come and see my glory. The Christ will return. He will gather the nations. He will judge them, and he will judge them perfectly and righteously because he knows everything that they think, and he he sees everything that they do, and he doesn't simply punish evil thoughts. He doesn't simply punish evil deeds punishes evildoers. And when Jesus returns, the sins of the world will appear before the Lord and they'll have to give an account for their thoughts and their behavior. And look at at verse 22. It says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. Again, here is a picture of new heavens and a new earth which I will which I will make shall remain before me. The idea is that these heavens and these earth, this earth in which we live will pass away. It will be temporal. And he will create a mechanism that is eternal. So shall your descendants and your name remain. The idea being that those who love him and know him and embrace him and worship him, they live forever. And that's the promise of the New Testament. That's the promise of Jesus. He's come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. And then in verse 24 it says, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. So how does Isaiah end his book? How does he close the scroll? In the last days of human history, The unrepentant will face a tragic and a horrible fate. They will die. And they will suffer eternal punishment. Eternal death. Now, again, we tend to think of death as the secession of life or the secession of consciousness. But death in the Bible isn't that at all. Death is separation. The soul that is dead and trespasses and sins is separated from God. The body, when it gives up the ghost, is separated from the spirit. You are a physical being and you are an immaterial soul and spirit. The person who turns from their sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, they walk in newness of life and they don't have to face death. The ungodly and the unrighteous of the earth spend eternity in a place called hell. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, it says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said that hell was never meant for you. Hell was meant for the rebellion of the angelic creatures who stood in opposition to God and all of the things of God. It was never meant for you. And so, Jesus was prepared for you. Do you understand the difference? Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Christ, Jesus, was prepared for you. God prepared from the beginning of humanity when Eve gives birth to a child and sets in motion a series of circumstances All of life and all of human history was a preparation for the Messiah, for you to receive the Messiah, for you to believe the Messiah, for you to walk in the Messiah. 
So how can people who reject Jesus wind up in heaven? If you reject the Lord of heaven, if you reject heaven's prince, if you reject heaven's king, if you reject heaven, heaven's sovereign, how is it that you can expect to go to heaven? You know what? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in the circumstances where you knew you weren't welcome? You showed up and it was very clear that they didn't want you there. (laughs) Let me ask you another question. Do you think God is at least as intuitive and sensitive and knowledgeable as you? Do you think that the God of the universe knows where he's not welcome? Do you think God knows that he's not welcome in the public school system? Do you think God knows that he is not welcome in the popular culture? Do you think God knows that he is not welcome in the worldview of ABC, CBS, NBC, and even Fox News? Do you think God knows where he's not welcome? But God also knows what to do about it. God knows what to do when he's not welcome. Do you understand that hell is God's way of saying no? to sin forever. Hell exists for those who think that they're just fine. That they don't need Jesus. Hell exists for those who imagine that they're good enough without Jesus. Let me ask you another question. Does it embarrass you that Isaiah closes his book with a warning about hell? Does that make you feel uncomfortable? A little awkward? It didn't make Jesus awkward, and it didn't embarrass Jesus. Do you realize in Mark chapter 9, verse 47, it says, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes than to be cast into hell fire. And then verse 48, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting the last verse in the book of Isaiah. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in describing the human condition in this world. And then he doesn't pull any punches in describing the human condition in the next world. Do you remember when he died? There were two thieves and two crosses beside him. Do you remember the story? How when he was crucified, there was a thief on the left and a thief on the right. And remember, at the beginning, they both began to mock him. And then one of them said, what are we doing? This is insane. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then he says, will you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? And then there was another one who continued to curse and continued to blaspheme. Someone told this story poetically. It goes like this. It was on a Friday morning when they took me from the cell. And I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on Pilate. You can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil. It's God that I accuse. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter hanging on the tree. Now Barabbas was a killer. And they let Barabbas go. But you're being crucified for nothing here below. 
And God is up in heaven and he doesn't do a thing with a million angels watching and they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter, hanging on the tree. (laughs) Several different Bible writers close the book this way. This awesome way in which the majestic book of Isaiah concludes points to the need for unrepentant people to turn to the Lord, the only God. Leupold says, peace eternal or death eternal. The book ends once again the way it began. Hope, judgment. Isn't that really the end of the thieves on the cross? One ends his life in hope. The other ends his life in judgment. David McKenna, this is the way he closes it. Once Isaiah saw God's vision for the future, he never looked back. The progression of his prophecy from the current events of his lifetime to the new exodus from Babylon exile, followed by the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of all nations, gives us our marching orders. Sounding again the double imperative of all generations to come, Isaiah urges us to leave the comfort and the splendor of our Jerusalem and become servants of the Lord in this world it's God's world Jesus is God's Messiah you'll come to God on one of two terms on your own terms or on his terms his terms has always been through his Messiah No wonder Jesus could turn to the thief on the cross and say, This day you will be with me in paradise. God keeps His promise to one man and to every man that if you'll turn to Him, He'll receive you. Remember the theme of the book of Isaiah. Israel's Messiah will come, has come, and will redeem you and reconcile you to the Father forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing book. What an amazing prophecy. What an amazing poem. What an amazing picture of your love and of your grace and of your mercy but of your persistent and consistent commitment to always do what's right to never do what's wrong to reward and honor and forgive those who will seek you and to remind with compassionate patience the person who in rebellion and disobedience persistently and consistently refuses to turn 
Lord, I pray that we wouldn't have that kind of wicked and evil heart. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't curse at the one and only hope that we have to escape the certain punishment of sin. Lord, we once again turn our hearts towards you. In humility and contrition, Lord, we pray that you would forgive our sin and that you would inhabit our hearts. That, Lord, we would never be content to be religious. And that we would be committed to a true friendship with you forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.